This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. A couple of lengthy shows on the way, so my time for comment is limited. But let's get right to the action with tonight's episode of Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, featuring Elliot Lewis as Sea Captain Philip Kearney and Ed Max as the supporting character Red Gallagher. Tonight's show is entitled The Shanghai Secret. Position, 123 degrees, 8 minutes west, 37 degrees, 31 minutes north. Gyro compass course, 237. Wind, fresh. Sky, fair. Remarks, cleared port of San Francisco at 2.30 p.m. Sailing delayed 19 hours due to death of first officer. Cause of death, the Shanghai secret. stood there on the pier that evening, the ache in my frame reminding me that the last long, hard day of loading stores was behind me, and watched a China-bound freighter feeling her way out into the fog-shrouded harbor. The Scarlet Queen nudged her fenders against the dock right below me, her bright work shining like costume jewelry even in the failing light. She was beautiful in her new white paint, and she was mine all 78 feet of her. She rose and fell, just a little, delicately, lifting the carved wood figure under her bowsprit out of the shadows now and then. A fresh young body, looking forward, bold, teasing, dressed in only a crown and painted brilliant red. The Scarlet Queen, the woman my own particular world revolved around. But that gray San Francisco evening wasn't cut out for romance between man and lacquered wood. I didn't hear him as he walked up behind me, but it didn't take me long to pick up the odor of a jail cell after he opened his mouth. You, Philip Carney? Yeah, that's right. I'm Kessel, San Francisco homicide. You know a man named David R. Malone? Yeah, he's my chief mate. What'd he do? He died. Come on, you got a date at headquarters. Wait a minute. A little sudden on a full stomach. What happened to him? The books are going to call it murder by a person or persons unknown. Homicide wants to know you better. Uh, 
And so Mutual begins The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman, and starring Elliot Lewis. The Scarlet Queen, broadest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry into the log. And every week, a league further in the strange voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Your last name first and middle initial. Carney Philip M. Age? 29. Age? Six, two and a half. Wage? 207. Eyes blue, hair brown. Scars or other identifying marks? Yeah, a tattoo. A three-strand Turk's head on my right bicep. A what? A three-strand Turk's head. It's a knot, you know. Or does somebody else tie your shoelaces? Castle, I'm getting awful sick of this. Shut up, man, for the question. Address? The Catch Scarlet Queen. Street number? Street number? How? Pier 48, birth 2, Embarcadero. Not permanent. That'll be enough for now, O'Brien. That might be a pretty permanent address at that, Connie. Not with me paying the rent. I got my port clearance and I'm leaving tomorrow. Maybe you are, Connie. How long had you known Malone? Since, uh, oh, about five days. Not about, Connie. How long? Five days. I signed him on five days ago. Uh-huh. When'd you see him last? Exactly. Uh, between 12.30 and 1 this afternoon, I saw his stern end going around the warehouse at Pier 48. He turned to the right, exactly. He went to room 218, the Crown Hotel on Columbus Avenue, the North Beach section. Why? Because he's human, I suppose. They build hotels for people to go into. He didn't look human when we found him. Look, Kessel. I don't know anything about it. I'm sorry Malone's dead. He was a nice guy. But that's all I can give you. If you want an alibi, I've got four seamen who loaded stores with me all day. That'll carry me to the time you tap me on the shoulder. What do you want, a halo? <laughs> That's all right, all right. Just don't get sore, Connie. Hey, you want a cigarette? No, thanks. All I want is a cab back to the Embarcadero. On you. Sure, sure. We'll take care of it. Just a couple more questions. Oh, huh? stop. That patient's act fits you about like a bare midriff evening gown. Take it off. Get comfortable. Thanks, Connie. I will. What could Malone have learned on your Scarlet Queen that somebody would go to a lot of trouble to get out of him? What are you talking about, Chesel? Malone was tortured. That's what I'm talking about. For a good long time. And then somebody slipped or lost their temper. He didn't know anything. He didn't know why $50,000 was deposited in your name last year? I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, Barrett. Bring Funston in. The name Funston rang just a faint bell for me, but I recognized the little guy they brought in all right. If there was anybody who knew about my banking business, he did. He worked there, in the assistant cashier's office. Down there, he was just another face looking at you through rimless glasses. Here, he looked like trouble. Mr. Funston, is this the man you say received that $50,000 letter of credit? Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Carney, but the police, you know. Uh, Yes, sir, he's the man. Remind me to bank someplace else next time. That's all, Mr. Funston. Thank you. Hi. I hope you understand, Mr. Carney. I had to answer the Cast off, Funston. I'll thank you later. You guys have got long noses, haven't you? Yeah. When things smell as rotten as this. It was deposited in the San Francisco Bank while you were in China with the Marines. Where are you getting this, Kessel? It was sent over as a letter of credit from a firm in Shanghai called Kang and Son. Most of it went to a local shipyard where your Scarlet Queen was built into a flock of coast companies for your cargo. Fifty thousand mystery dollars, Carney. And a voyage to nowhere. 
I won it in a crap game, and my articles say Honolulu. Ah, Honolulu. With enough stores aboard for a two-year cruise, who do you think you're kidding, Connie? Why don't you talk? Why don't you get tired? You're pumping a lot of bilge flush. You're bluffing your heart out, and you know it. All right, Connie, you can go. It's about time. But uh, you'll be at Pier 48 when we want you. What do you mean by that? The Coast Guard's a cooperative outfit. Your port clearance has been revoked until this is cleaned up. I'll uh, call you when I want you again. I would have traded places with any engine room hand on any Great Lakes ship after I left Kessel. And I hate fresh water almost as much as I hate engine rooms. Kang had warned me when I signed with him in Shanghai. The opposition, he called him. An octopus with a body in an office building in Hong Kong, a brain called Constantino, and the tentacles groping across the world for the prize Kang was sending me after. A $10 million prize somewhere in the South Pacific. Its exact location was Kang's secret. And Constantino was ready to bribe, steal, or murder to get that secret. I didn't know who his San Francisco tentacle was, but I did know that it had killed Malone. I knew that he'd been tortured for something even I didn't know. The true destination of the Scarlet Queen. It was 7.30 by the time I got back to the Queen. I checked the mooring lines, went into my cabin, poured myself two quick, stiff drinks, and started to clean a 45 automatic I'd gotten out of the habit of wearing. If Constantino's machine had gone into operation, I figured it might be a healthy habit to get back into. I had it stripped and spread out on my desk. And that's when I met Gallagher. Big Red Gallagher. Hello, Skipper. Who the devil are you and how'd you get aboard? I wanted to talk to you. I'm Red Gallagher. Where's my gangway watch? He's got orders. Nobody aboard. He tried, Skipper. Don't blame him. But you know how it is. I wanted to talk to you. He didn't have to explain. He held up a hand about the size of a fielder's glove and rubbed the knuckles as if they were bruised. He didn't have to say any more. He was about my size, wearing a shapeless, stained white duck officer's cap, faded dungarees, and a jumper with the sleeves rolled up. His face was heavy-featured, but not flat. His eyes gray and set off by crow's feet wrinkles and squinting into the sun. And they were laughing at me. But no harm done, Skipper. He hasn't hurt bad. Maybe he wasn't big enough to put you over the side. Now, huh? wait a minute, Skipper. Take it easy. We'll just bust up a lot of furniture and lose a lot of skin that way. Don't be so jumpy. All right, unload in a hurry and get out of here, then. What do you want? I hear you're looking for a new chief mate, and I want to sign on. Where did you hear I was looking for a new chief mate? I got a friend at the mall. He keeps me a beam of these things. Uh-huh. Is the rest of the story for sale? What story, Skipper? Is there something I should know? I don't like your trim, Gallagher. Maybe it's because you think you can get a berth after knocking my crewman around. Maybe it's because I think you're lying in your teeth. Either way, I wouldn't get into a dory with you. Wait a minute, Skipper. I was made for this trip. I know that South Pacific. How do you know where I'm going? Maybe that scarlet beauty under your bowsprit whispered to me. You're too nosy for me, Gallagher. Get your sea boots off the ship. I'm manned and loaded and ready to shove as soon as I get clearance. When do you think that'll be, Skipper? What do you mean by that? There you go, getting jumpy again. That was a civil question. I just wanted to know how long, that's all. It'll be as quick as I can make it. Yeah. I guess I can't blame you for that, but maybe it'll be long enough for me to try again. You need me on this ship, Skipper. I've lived a long time without you. Keep your eye on the newspaper shipping columns, Gallagher. That's as close as you'll come to my sailing. 
After he left, I reassembled the forty-five, checked my naval code on the disposition and effects of deceased seamen, and started to get Malone's gear together. In the pocket of one of his coats, I found a match folder from the Gorgonio, a bar advertising pre-war liquor and continuous entertainment. On the inside, somebody had written a name, Helen, and a number that straightened me up like a right to the chin. It was 218, the number of the murder room at the Crown Hotel. Twenty minutes later, I was at the Gorgonio. It was a typical non-tourist North Beach bar. Good, healthy fishermen up from Fisherman's Wharf. Three women at the bar, and one sitting at the electric organ up on a platform. None of them had Helen printed on their backs, but the only one whose name anyone would bother writing down was the girl making with the music. Honey-colored hair with a gardenia over the left ear. White shoulders pushing out of the whiter gown. A face full of confidence in the rest of it. And no wonder. After I finished my drink, I walked back toward her. Say, excuse me, but would your name be Helen? Oh, it's a novel approach, isn't it? Should I go back and try it over with Irene or Penelope? <laughs> What's the difference? It ends the same way. Can I play something for you? This one suits me. If I could talk to you through it. Can't for the life of me see what we'd have to talk about. Maybe some other time we can get around to that. But I ran into an old mate of mine yesterday. He mentioned this place, and you know I'd like to locate him. His name is Dave Malone. Do you know him? Malone? Sure he said he knew me? Yeah, I thought so, but maybe he was just hoping, huh? Yeah. Afraid that must have been it, because I don't know any Dave Malone. Yeah, well, it was one of those things. He mentioned your name, so I thought I'd give it a try, but I'll coast around. Maybe I'll come back on my own sometime. I hope you do. I'll be here. Wear that dress, will you? I had another drink at the bar and kept my eyes off her just enough to catch her looking at me with more than a professional look once or twice. She did go off guard right after I threw Malone's name at her. I was sure of it. I finished my drink and went out the door like I had someplace to go. But I stopped right after I got out of range of the windows, counted five, and eased back so I could just look in. She was leaving the platform. And I, along with the good, healthy fisherman, watched her sway that white gown back to the phone booth. It wasn't taking her long to contact somebody about me contacting her. It was just chance so far, but they were Malone, Helen, and 218, the number of the murder room at the Crown Hotel. It could have been coincidence, but there isn't much room on the back of a match folder. Hotel was a narrow brownstone front building squeezed between two more narrow brownstone front buildings. I looked in at the musty lobby. It was empty. I tried the door once to see if it was going to ring a bell someplace. When nobody showed up, I went in. There was a dingy brown hunting scene hung on one wall and a dingy brown smell of bad ventilation hanging over everything. There was an immodest calendar of Marino Gambling Club wasting its time behind the desk. And a register book that had seen more lives than Munchaus. And I flipped the pages back to the day before. Found room 218. It was registered to one John Smith. 
Then, just on impulse, I flipped back to the current date and found myself on top of the whole mess. Sprawled in an awkward hand against room 218 was the single name Gallagher. Room 218 and the name Gallagher, all I needed to keep me going up those stairs, all I had to remember to enjoy bringing that 45 out of my shoulder holster was the picture of that wide grin and those gray eyes. I'd have gone through that door even if it hadn't have been unlocked. Well, Skipper, come on in. I'm in, brother. What's all the hardware for, Skipper? Why are you always aching for a beef when you and I run into one another? Let's sow that warm friendship, shall we? Let you do a little talking that you mean for a while. I never say anything I don't mean, Skipper. You'll learn that when you know me better. That's what I'm here for, Gallagher, so start saying something you mean. Sure. Why do you think I took this room if I wasn't sure you'd be bullying around this neighborhood tonight? What interests me most is that you did. I knew you'd like it, Skipper. I know you've got to have Malone's murderer before you can clear San Francisco, and I can give him to you. They call him Mr. Fox. He's working for Constantino. If you didn't know that before, you know it now. Who's Constantino? You're being cagey, Skipper, and that's all right. You don't know what to say because you don't know how much I know. I don't know how much you know, so we're even, right? You're talking. The Fox didn't learn what he wanted to learn from Malone. He tried too hard. So he paid me two grand to sign on with you. I was supposed to find out what part of the Southern Oceans you were making for, and the payoff was going to be a grand a month. But just keeping the finger on you and waiting to be contacted. It was an easy deal. Somebody in your family must have been born with shark fins not too far back. There was supposed to be a great uncle under the Jolly Roger skipper, but <laughs> no fins yet. But I got reason. I'm telling you this because if they'd pay off like that for just a line on you, I figure the real dough is going to be made on your side. You've got to hold of something big. I still want to ship with you, but for you. Well, I'm a dirty... I'm telling you, Gallagher, for the price of the queen, I can't tell you who's crazy in this room. Nobody is, Skipper. You're going to be ahead, too. Believe me, you are. I can help you clear up the mess here in Frisco. I'll put you next to the fox and his mermaid. Oh? Uh-huh. Her name Helen? How'd you get that? She isn't hard to find. Well, uh... <laughs> that's right, Helen Curran. She led Malone to this room with a smile and a promise. Yeah, Neither one would look good from her. I know I was there. She's seen you? Did you tell her who you were? Are you not? Then it'll work. Listen. But tonight, you're the chief mate of the Scarlet Queen. You beat me out of the berth. If you'll go for that story, I'll get you Malone's killer. Or put me on a morgue slab for another two grand. I trust you like I trust a compass at the North Pole. <laughs> it'll take you a month to get him without me, Skipper. With you under homicide's third degree? <laughs> Even then. Now, here's my deal, and we both make headway. I get the mate's berth, and you get your port clearance. But we gotta have a bait, that's you. And we gotta have somebody who can put it in the right place, that's me. You got the 45. Take a gamble, Skipper. I'll show you how it works. It was about a quarter of 11 when I pulled my left ear for luck the last time, followed him down to the lobby, took my last look at that Reno calendar. Gallagher looked like he was enjoying putting me on the block, and the only reason I could dream up for playing sucker was the idea that as long as I kept the line on him, I was at least secured of something. He squeezed me into the phone booth with him when he put the bait on the hook. He held the receiver so I could get my ear into it, too, and called Helen Curran at the Gorgonio. Hello, baby. This is Red. Oh, it's about time. I thought you were coming in. And something came up. Did you get the gardenia? Sure. Sure, I'm wearing it right now. 
Can I show you how much I like it? Don't talk like that when I'm so far away. Listen, things got foul tonight, but I think they'll work out anyway. What happened, Rick? I missed that mate's birth by about 15 minutes. A guy by the name of Pritchard beat me to it. Red, the fox isn't going to like this. I think he will. Did a guy come in there tonight looking for Dave Malone? Yeah. Why, Red? That was Pritchard. And he's got the information we want. That sounds funny, Red. How'd you get all this? He stuck his head in a bar where I was, and I recognized him. He knows where they're headed. I could have maybe pumped him for it, but uh, I thought it'd be better if you and the fox were in on it, too. Yeah. Where is he? On his way back to the Gorgonio to see you. He's big. So I'd better tag along for the party, don't you think? Maybe in your apartment later, if you can get him there... And I think you can. All right, Red. Give me a half hour to get through to the Fox and call me back. I'll let you know where he'll pick you up, okay? Yeah, but, uh, baby, take it easy till I get there. I don't want that gardenia crushed on anybody's shoulder but mine. Helen Curran knew her business. She didn't go overboard selling herself, but like nature taking its course, she and the white gown and I got into a cab after closing time. Her apartment was in the Buell Arms on Russian Hill. It was a little overdone in modernizing a setup that was dull mid-Victorian a few years back. Light walls with Venetian blinds. Some flamingos and parakeets flying through verdant jungles. He framed before they started. And the bedroom to the right that she went into saying something about something comfy. When she came back, I saw clearly that she went for off-the-shoulder hostess gowns, too. There now. I feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. What's the matter with me, anyway? Is there something? I always seem to stir the wrong approach in you. Or are you just shy? With you, you don't need an approach. You just move naturally. <laughs> you aren't shy at all, are you? You're just overconfident. You've been spoiled by women. Never hurt me. But then it's not very often as appealing as your brand. Do you think I'll spoil you? Uh-uh. But I wonder if you'd hurt me. Not even if I could, and I... Hey, wait a minute. Oh, I couldn't hurt you if I wanted to, could I? I don't know, but from where I sit, who cares? Like I said, she knew her business. And I had to keep remembering that it wasn't all crushed gardenias tonight. We finally did get around to a drink out of a rattan-covered bottle, and I could tell by the heavy-lidded look she gave me over her glass that I was supposed to be a complete victim and as meek as a kitten with a full belly. She knew her business. But knowing that she knew her business, I went along with the kitten act. But I was as ready as a tiger when Gallagher opened the door. But I wasn't ready for the man he brought with him. It was Funston. L.B. Funston, still looking through the rimless glasses, but now his eyes were steely hard and it only took one deep breath to realize that he was the fox. He had a small caliber gun out of an inside pocket faster than I could get my breath. Wait a minute, Gallagher. This man's name is not Richard. Fox, what do you mean? I know it. Something went wrong. This guy's Bill Connie, the master of the Scarlet Queen. I was sitting on the couch and after a sellout like that, there was no use standing up. Helen left me like I'd broken out with the purple pox, and Gallagher still stood behind Funston looking at me with that grin. Red! Red, he's the one who was in to see me earlier. Never mind, Helen. He isn't the guy I talked to. Never mind, I said. 
You're an impulsive man, Carney. I'm a little surprised at you, too, Funston. What are you doing here? I like a game of bridge as well as the next guy. You play a stupid game. You should remember that your Red Queen is not the top of the chute. She'll do. She'll never win a trick. You'll never use her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But you're bluffing, Funston. Uh-huh. Either that or you're double-crossing Constantino and talking for yourself. Fighting to stay clear of Malone's murder. I want more than talk. You're still bluffing. You don't want to hurt me because with me out of the way, Constantino's octopus would have nothing to follow. Wise up. You don't scare me. I'm too valuable. All right. I'll pay you $25,000 for the destination of your Scarlet Queen. I can't hear you. There are other methods, Connie. Now you're bluffing again. You'd never get it that way either. And what did Constantino say if you laid me next to Malone? That's something I'll have to find out. At the moment, that looks better than arrest for murder. Stand up, Carney. You're really on a spot, Funston. You're even getting the double cross from your own people in this room. Now, who's bluffing, Carney? I mean, you're getting it from Gallagher. He knew who I was tonight. Gallagher! Skipper, why it... do you have to rush? Hey! Oh. I'm all right, Skipper. I'll take him. What's the money? I raced her across the room to a table. She had a drawer open and a nickel-plated revolver half out of it by the time I grabbed her. Drop it! Drop it! I said drop it! Calm down. Get over there and calm down. Grabbed her by the arm and tossed her across the room and had that 45 out before she landed. I twisted a look at Funston. Gallagher had hit him hard enough to keep him from opening until Christmas. He was tangled up with a throw rug and not thinking about a thing. Oh, well, Skipper. There's your port clearance and my chief mate's best spread all over the room. Yeah. Now, what the devil was the idea of you leaving me to shake hands with that gun of Funston for so long? I had to do it, Skipper, to keep him off guard. He knew our story was fishy before I got him up here. He knew? Yeah. He knew you hadn't signed on the chief mate. He had good spies. Where'd he find that out? Right. He got it by being the honest banker. Huh? Eager to play along with the police. He kept in touch with your friend at Homicide, Kessel. Yeah. I knew that Kessel was a good man. <laughs> but we're a great team, Skipper. We're standing up and they're laying down. But Constantino isn't with them. We'll hear from him again. Keep an eye on him, will you? I got a proud call to make to Homicide. By two the next afternoon, we cast off from Pier 48 and were headed out. We went through the Golden Gate under power, sitting on the wheel box with a bottle between us. We followed the channel buoys out to the power line, picking up that good deep water roll. And the driving westerly started to sing through the rigging. I felt like a man getting his back out of a cast and walking again. The crew perked up, too, and they fell through with a will when Gallagher started falling on had a pull from the bottle and shook hands with them. They took their stations at the main The man the Hattiers hoisted away smartly and the head of the main climbed up the mast. And the white expanse of it bellied out and pulled the deck beneath me hove over the port. And I could feel the power of the wheel. The gypsum boomed out. Then the mizzen. Scarlet Queen was glad to be free, too. She took the phone in her teeth and charged every swell as though she were carrying on a one-woman war with the whole Pacific. Here's the rig heavy enough for you, Skipper. We're showing eight knots on the taffrail law. Good enough. 
We'll hold her full and vital nightfall, and then let her off some. <laughs> you got a fine lady here, Skipper. They have you like a queen. <laughs> you get us to Cayuwe Channel in less than 14 days. That means the Royal Hawaiian Bar in less than 14 nights. What's the run from there? That'll depend on the wind and other circumstances. Japan, the coast of China, then south across the line to the shallow sea. How long are we going to be down there? We may never get there, so who cares how long it'll be? Not me. I'm not married. Yeah, I know, mate. With a scarlet queen, the bigamist. Oh, better let me take the wheel, then. We've got to have a honeymoon sometime. Sure, take over. Course is 237 on the gyro compass. Got her? Yeah. Hey, she's got spirit. What a wife she's going to make. What a honeymoon. Want a drink, Skipper? After you, mate. Your wedding day. And you'll make a handsome couple. Believe me, you do. Log entry. Catch Scarlet Queen. 5.30 p.m. Miles traveled 31. Wind brisk. Sky fair. Sea cresting with high cross swell. Mainsail and mizzen reefed. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney, Master. The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Stay tuned for the Fred Allen Show next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for the ever-irascible Fred Allen to appear in a show first aired in 1948. The Ford Dealers of America present the Fred Allen Show. The Fred Allen Show with Fred's guests, the new literary lion, Mr. James A. Farley, Portland Hoffa, Minerva Pius, Peter Donald, Parker Fenley, the DeMarco sisters, and Al Goodman and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, this week a survey reported that the life expectancy of the average man is 62 and 6 tenths years. Tonight, we present an average man who hopes to live to be as old as his joke. He's Fred Allen. Thank you. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In Portland, what is this life expectancy business? What is that? The average man is supposed to live 62 years. Oh, that's silly. That's what Mama says. What? A man can't get his social security until he's 65. Well, if he only lives to be 62... The man will have to be dead three years before he can apply for his social security. <laughs> well, the, the Marshall Plan is better than that. How does that work? Well, to get money under the Marshall Plan, you have to be living, but not in this country. <laughs> Enough about life expectancy. What is our last expectancy for this evening? Oh, I have some clippings. Oh, clippings. Good. What's in the news? Last Sunday, Edgar Bergen's program wasn't on the air. No kidding. You mean uh, Edgar's listeners didn't have a chance to hear that singing jingle? A royal pudding. <laughs> 
biscuits, it's a flavor. Smooth muscle is filled. They didn't have a chance. Music lovers, no. jingle lovers didn't hear that. And eh? Jack Benny's program was off at the beginning, and he was cut off at the end, too. The beginning and the end were off, eh? Uh-huh. Now, if they can only find a way to do something about the middle of Benny's program... Radio will really be making progress, Portland. I read that Jack's going to England this summer. Yes, he's America's answer to C. Aubrey Smith. <laughs> oh, you're always picking on Jack. Why not? Benny is the only actor in Hollywood who has a burglar alarm on his garbage pail. <laughs> I know that. Mrs. Levant called Benny up to see if he could do as much for her. <laughs> Tell me that's not libelous, is it? Is that libel? You're liable to get a letter from Oscar for that. Tell me, what the, What else is new? They called a man from New Jersey selling horse meat in New York. No kidding. How did they catch him? Somebody found a racing form in a beef stew. No kidding. <laughs> I had a steak one time. I think it came from a steeplechase horse. Why? Every time I stuck my fork in the steak, it jumped over the mashed potato. <laughs> and after that, I think I'll jump over the next two jokes, Portland, and start for Alan's out. What is your question tonight? Well, last week, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Mastodonic and Super Colossal Circus opened here at Madison Square Garden. And so our question naturally is, what did you like best about this year's edition of the circus? Shall we go? As the stocking said when the garter broke, there's nothing to hold me up. Well, here we are back in Allen's Alley, Portland. Say, I guess Senator Claghorn's in all right. His Ford is parked in the mule stall. The mule must be in the house putting on the feed bag with the senator. Well, let's knock. Somebody, I say somebody put the skin to my mansion. Oh, it's you, jowl eyes. Jowl eyes? Now, wait a minute, Senator. Oh, your head looks lumpy, son. I can see you got something on your mind. Well, yes, Well, still it, son. I'm busier than a sinner's kneecap at a revival meeting. <laughs> you know, the baseball season opens in Washington tomorrow. I'm getting little old Harry in shape. Well, <laughs> is, the, is the president going to participate in the game? Oh, I sure is. This year, Harry will play ball with anybody. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he can't wait to throw that first ball out to the Washington team. Well, why? It'll be the first time this year the Senators have taken anything from Harry. <laughs> well, tell me, Senator, how do you think the baseball season is going to uh, turn out? Well, the Taft-Hartley Act is going to make it hard on umpires. The Taft-Hartley Act? Well, before an umpire can call a strike, he'll have to get out an injunction. <laughs> Well, look, tell me, Senator, what about the circus this year? Have you seen... Well, John, the circus ain't got nothing we ain't got down in Washington. You, uh... Take them clowns. We got more clowns in Washington than the circus ever seen. <laughs> and, uh, them you We got politicians with bigger mouths than any you bangy. Right. Take that juggler keeping 20 Indian clubs in the air. Congress has got the whole country up in the air. What about the strong man, Senator? He carried 20 men on his back. Well, carrying 20 men ain't nothing, son. No? We got a man down in Washington named Stassen. A strong man? He just carried two states, Wisconsin and Nebraska. So long, oh, son. So long, Eddie. Oh, 
I uh, wonder if Harold will put those down later. Well, let's see. Let's see if Mr. Moody is still around. Moody, Bob. <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Moody, what is your reaction to the circus this year? Oh, shucks. <laughs> circus. Circus don't mean nothing to me. Uh, no? No. My whole family was circus folks. Oh, really? Uh, they was freaks, mostly. <laughs> My uncle Geek Moody. Geek Moody? Geek L. Moody. Yes? He was known as Jojo, the dog-faced boy. He, he was famous. Oh, yes, I've heard of Jojo. Uh, he used to pose for dog food ads. Pose? <laughs> he posed, eh? Jojo was a man of distemper. Oh, <laughs> My aunt, Mona Moody. Yes. She traveled as Madame Lafarge. Oh, <laughs> Madame Lafarge, eh? She was a bearded lady. Oh. Well, how did your aunt become a bearded lady? Why, she was raised on goat's milk. Yeah. As a baby, she had a little goatee. <laughs> I see. I could see how that would develop. Yeah. But the time she went to the circus, Mona was sure hairy. She was hairy, eh? Her face looked like the elbow of a raccoon court. Well, what, uh, what other relatives did you have with the circus? Well, my brother, Bunch Moody, he was a duck impersonator. A duck impersonator, eh? But things got bad and he disappeared. He took his feathers and his web feet and disappeared completely? Yeah, there was only one trace. The duck impersonator? He left a big bill at the hotel. <laughs> well, <laughs> have, you, have you yourself ever been with the circus, Titus? Oh, once when I was a boy, but I got fired. Fired? What happened? Why, my job was feeding Jumbo, the elephant. Yeah. After two months, Jumbo lost 400 pounds. You want nothing but skin and tusks. Well, how come? I, I was nearsighted. Nearsighted? For two months, I was leaving the elephant's hay at the wrong end. <laughs> the elephant's hay at the wrong end? Yeah. Jumbo was starving to death. Uh-huh. But he was setting pretty. So long, <laughs> This is too much for me. Let's uh, let's uh, try this next door. Hi, Jeffy. Oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. How do you feel about the circus this year? I am going with Mr. and Mrs. Epstein. Oh, the Epsteins, eh? He is in the fur business, a big squeeze. Oh, in the <laughs> fur business. Well, tell me, what uh, what happened at the circus? First, we are seeing the Siamese twins, two girls. Girls, Siamese twins? And standing in front is a big crowd, and everybody's guessing. Guessing what? Which Siamese twin is having the Tony permanent? Oh, I see. <laughs> well, after... <laughs> after viewing the twins... We are seeing the animals until is happening the accident. Oh, say, what, what caused the accident? Well, Mrs. Epstein is wearing... Why not? Her husband is in the fur business, a leopard coat. Oh, I see. I see. Passing the leopard's cage, Mrs. Epstein is looking first on her coat, next on the leopard. Uh-huh. And she is saying, for this, I am marrying. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Epstein is saying, what now? What now? Pointing to the leopard, Mrs. Epstein is saying, an animal is wearing a better fur coat than Lulu Bell Epstein. Wow. 
So Mr. Epstein is saying, your coats with connections I'm buying wholesale. Yeah? Who does a leopard know he could buy wholesale a skin? I see. With this, Mrs. Epstein is pouting. She's pouting, eh? Mr. Epstein is saying, the leopard is a phony. His skin is imitation. I will prove it. Being in the business. Through the cage, Mr. Epstein is reaching in the hand to feeling by the leopard the skin. Yes. Yes, there is a shriek. A shriek? What happened? You are eating with the circus of the great Eunice. Oh, the fellow who balances himself on only one finger? One finger. You mean the great Eunice? He is formerly Mr. Epstein. (laughs) And that, uh... That brings us to Mr. Cassidy, Shanty. Well, let's stop for a minute or so with Ajax. Here they Well, Ajax. Hey, <laughs> Ajax, have you been to the circus yet? Ah, uh, don't mention circus to me. The opening matinee, I took me little nephew Cosmos O'Shaughnessy. Cosmos O'Shaughnessy? Oh, sure, he's a human wildcat. Really? Well, to keep Cosmos from disrupting the circus, I bought him a box of Cracker Jacks, and I held him firmly by his sticky hand. You walked around holding little Cosmos by the hand? Well, only once I let go. When was that? Well, I was passing a big cage, you see. Yeah. And outside it said Gargantua. Gargantua? Well, I looked in the cage, and this gentleman was in there. Yeah. <laughs> Himself, says I, Gargantua. He looks like an uncle of mine, Mullet Muldoon. <laughs> Mullet Muldoon, eh? Says I, hello, Mullet. But he just sat there cracking peanuts between his toes. Well, it must have been Gargantua. Unless Mullet was playing possum. Let's possum. <laughs> well, after this episode. So I, I reached out and I took little Cosmos again by the hand. I see. And I looked down. Glory be. What? Be the hand instead of holding little Cosmos O'Shaughnessy with his box of cracker jacks. Yes? I'm holding a midget, a little wrinkled one. A wrinkled well, What did you do? When the circus was over, what could I do? You took the midget home? I explained the circumstances to Mr. and Mrs. O'Shaughnessy. Yes? He took a shine to the midget. Uh-huh. And the midget took a shine to the O'Shaughnessy. No, there was blessings all around. Well, what happened to little Cosmos? Uh, if you happen to visit the circus. Yes? And you see a midget with a sticky hand eating cracker jacks. Yes? You're looking at Cosmos O'Shaughnessy. Well, tell me, Ajax, how did you personally like the circus? Ah, uh, me boy, they call it the biggest show on earth. To me, it is the biggest disappointment on earth. Disappointment? The circus? All that sawdust on the floor and you can't buy a drink in the place. Good night. <laughs> Circus return to our musical sideshow. The five DeMarco sisters and Maestro Al Goodman and his big top band combined to give us Tooley Ooly Dooley, girl. Now you know what to do. 
Reverse the charges and tell her how you feel about it. <laughs> yeah, but my, my, uh, I know that my poem isn't about a girl. Not about what oh. sort of a dactyl is it? Well, man? I'll read it. Listen. Roses are red, violets are blue, Ford's love, Ford's service, and so will you. What's wrong with that? It starts off swell. Yeah, I know. It's just the next couplet is where I need help. Oh, well. I can't seem to rhyme genuine Ford parts, special equipment, Ford train mechanics, and factory-approved methods. Now, let me... That takes a bit of doing, but I may be able to handle it <laughs> pending the arrival of Superman. Let me see. <laughs> special equipment. You need a rhyme special... Say, I have it, Kenny. How is this? Special equipment and Ford train mechanics stop service worries, eliminate panics. Ah, that's great, Fred. Great, yeah. and I have a sock finish. Get this. Your thought is never nervous when you bring it home for service. How was that, Fred? Well, you want the truth, Kenny. Yeah. It was all right, but you will never be the Edgar Guest of tomorrow. Well, <laughs> maybe not, Fred, but at least my poem tells why the best service from start to finish is designed to cost less at your friendly Ford dealer. Yes, it does. It does do that. You have just heard a minute or two from Now is the Hour. Played by Maestro Al Goodman and 25 men who, if their instruments were taken away, would look like the police lineup. And now, say, uh, say, Portland. Yes? Would you help me arrange uh, these chairs around the table here, please? Uh, we're having a literary discussion tonight. Have you found the book? Oh, I have a book, uh, an author, and a brace of critics. Oh, who is the author? Mr. James A. Foley. Who is Mr. James A. Foley? Who is Mr. James A. Foley? He is only one of the most famous figures in American political life. Why, Mr. Foley's new book is sweeping the country. It's number two on the best uh, seller list as of today. Has it been banned in Boston yet? <laughs> No, only in Maine and Vermont. That's right. I'm uh, looking forward to this tonight, Portland. This is going to be some dis uh, discussion. What a night for the literati. Yes, and for the people who, who uh, can read, too. There we go. Well, Portland, I guess we're all set. Let's start our book program. Presenting The Author Meets His Match. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is your moderator, that popular literary figure, the man who knew Random House when it was just a Quonset hut, <laughs> Mr. Frederick Allen. Thank you, and good evening, fellow bookworms. Tonight, as usual, our program is unrehearsed, unprepared, and uncalled for. <laughs> the book up for discussion this evening is Jim Farley's Story, written by the Honorable James A. Farley. 
We have a brilliant panel of literary giants assembled this evening. I'm going to ask the critics to introduce themselves. Now, first... I am Dr. Wolfgang Holstein. <laughs> you are a psychiatrist, Dr. Holstein? Yeah, so my office is in Central Park. <laughs> in Central Park? Yeah, instead of a couch, my patients lay down on a bench. <laughs> Well, how can patients find you in Central Park? Uh, simple. You come in from 6th Avenue, and on the left, you are looking behind a bush and whistling. <laughs> you are behind the bush? I am dressed like a doctor. I am wearing a white coat and white pants. Oh, I see. In between patients, I tell good humor. How <laughs> Doctor, do you, uh, do you by any chance have a literary background? Oh, so I, I am writing a book now on psychiatry. Oh, a book? It is called From Neurosis to Halitosis. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah, the, the bookmark is a package of sen-sen. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Holt. You're welcome. Now, our next critic... I am Prudence Paddleford. And you, uh, Miss Paddleford? I am the literary consultant and hostess in charge of tea bags for the Rexall Drugstore. You, uh, you review the books before they go on sale at your chain of drugstores? Yes, I select books that will help the sale of our merchandise. Well, just how do you mean that, Miss Paddleford? Well, for example, when we're having a sale of soap, we display Captain from Castile. <laughs> when we have a special on umbrellas, we feature Raintree County. Very good, yes. And when we displayed Bob Hope's book, yes. we were introducing Airwick. Well, never. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Paddle. But are now the international celebrity. I am Sergei Stroganov from the Soviet Union, literary correspondent for the world's outstanding daily newspaper, Pravda. You, uh... I am the sworn enemy of yellow journalism, bourgeois music, and things in general. <laughs> Mr. Stroganoff, you are a critic. All my life I have been a critic. That is why I'm in America today. Well, why? I criticize something in Russia. <laughs> How do you feel about American books? Americans, bah! They are all capitalists. The only books the Americans are reading are bank books. God <laughs> will hold you, plutocrat. Thank you, Mr. Stroganoff. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our distinguished author of the evening. I am James A. Farley. <laughs> Mr. Farley, you are the author of Jim Farley's story. I am. Tell me, how did you come to write about yourself? In politics, Mr. Allen, that's the safest thing to do. The, uh, <laughs> the safest? You better write about yourself before somebody else does. <laughs> well, will you tell us something about your book, Mr. Fowler? I'd be glad to. Jim Farley's story is a sort of a record of my life in politics. Over 35 years of service in the Democratic Party. Well, at what point in your life, uh, Mr. Fowley, did you first suspect that you would join this party? When I was a baby, my parents knew I would grow up to be a Democrat. Well, how? A Republican politician who was running for office came around kissing babies. Yes? When he bent over my crib to kiss me... Yes? I bit him on the nose. <laughs> and? Biting that Republican was my first service to the Democratic Party. Mr. Farley. There, ladies and gentlemen, you have our brilliant lineup for tonight. Our author, Mr. James A. Farley, versus our three astounding critics. <laughs>
And now, critic... Oh, excuse me, please. Uh, yes, Dr. Holstein? Uh, Mr. Farley is a very interesting psychological case. Well, how, how do you mean that, Doctor? Well, as a baby, he bit a man on the nose. Yes? This is a sign of frustration. <laughs> the, the baby could not bite his own nose, so he bit somebody else's nose. <laughs> you Americans always, you're sticking your noses into somebody else's business. In Russia, everybody has his nose to the grindstone. It looks terrible. <laughs> oh, well, speaking of noses, give your nose a treat. Let it smell the perfume on sale at Rexall. Ah, you see, I told you. Now Rexall is putting their business in everybody's noses. <laughs> Why don't you go by the Critics, we are here to discuss Mr. Farley's book. Mr. Farley, I've heard you on several radio programs recently. Speaking about your book in uh, glowing terms. Yes, Mr. Allen, I've appeared with the Fitzgeralds, Mary Marguerite McBride, Dorothy and Dick, an author meets the critic. Radio in America, bah! In Russia, the real radio. What program? The masses go the shopping. <laughs> Life can be brutal. And Comrade Linklater's program, people are Bolsheviks. That's radio. <laughs> Excuse me, please. Uh, yes, 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 please, Dr. Holstein, please. Yes, Dr. Holstein. I had a patient once who was on the radio. He was a sound man. A sound man? Yeah. All he did was open and close doors. Yeah. After five years, he thought he was a door. <laughs> this man thought he was a door? Yeah. He took the buttons off his vest and had a knob sewed on. <laughs> He went around knocking himself. Doctor, did you did you cure this patient? Oh, absolutely, yeah. He he no longer thinks he's a door. No, today he thinks he's a window. <laughs> he goes with his vest pulled up. He thinks he's open. Yes, it is very. Speaking of radio, Rexall carries a complete stock of radios. And remember, if there's no Rexall drugstore in your neighborhood. Your neighborhood is no neighborhood. It's a wilderness. Yeah, in America, that's a wilderness. Siberia is a wilderness. Your brain is a wilderness. Who needs you here? Dr. Holstein, please, if you will. Sorry. Control yourself, Doctor. I, uh, I must remind you, critics, we're here to discuss Mr. Farley's book. Now, Mr. Farley, would you tell us, please, some of the uh, highlights of Jim Farley's story? Well, I think one of the most exciting days of my life was the day I was appointed Postmaster General. Postmaster General. That is capitalism. A general can't make enough money being a general. He's got to be a postmaster on the side. Mr. Farley, excuse me. Yes, Dr. Holstein. Uh, you said you were the Postmaster General? Yes, I was appointed in 1933. Yeah, so in 1933, I mailed out a bill to one of my patients. <laughs> The patient never paid me. He says he never got the bill. But what does that concern me, doctor? Well, did you ever have a letter left over in your mail bag? <laughs> I, didn't I didn't deliver the mail, doctor. I was the postmaster general. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Dr. Holstein, did you put a stamp on that letter in 1933? I... Oh, a stamp? I knew I forgot something. <laughs> Stamps remind me. Mm. You make a stamp with your tongue. This week, Rexall is featuring a delicious tongue sandwich. As we say at Rexall, our tongue sandwich speaks for itself. Yeah, this is America. Only a sandwich can speak. A man can't open his mouth. Oh, open your mouth. You don't say nothing. That's all you just keep One more outburst, and I'll adjourn this discussion. I'm sorry, Mr. Farley. Getting back to your book. 
Today in the New York Times, I noticed that Jim Farley's story is second on the bestseller list. How do you account for that? Well, Mr. Allen, this is an election year. Probably everybody is interested in politics. Yeah, Mr. Farley, as a psychiatrist, I would say that politics, politics is the most... Politics is bourgeois propaganda. Shrug enough, I was talking... Talking, talking, always you're talking. Yadda, yadda, yadda. The only honest politics. We are having the secret ballot. The secret ballot? The Communist Party and the other party. What is the other party? That is the secret. <laughs> A big march like you keep now, in your book, quiet, please. In your book, Mr. Farley, Mr. in your book, do you deal with any other subject or do you confine yourself to politics? Well, I mentioned of my business association with the Coca-Cola Company. Yeah, you know, that is most interesting, Mr. Farley. I once had a patient who thought he was a Coca-Cola bottle. A Coca-Cola bottle? Yeah, every time he returned himself to my office, I had to give him a nickel back on himself. <laughs> what finally happened to this patient who thought he was a bottle of Coca-Cola? He blew his top. <laughs> Drink is vodka and Coca-Cola. In each glass, we are putting two bear's feet. Two bear's feet? Those are the paws that refresh us. That may be a joke, but Rexall's service is no joke. You are a joke. I'm laughing on you. Yeah, hyenas is always laughing. Touche, doctor. Hyena, he says. They are calling me a hyena. Are you listening, Joe? <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Farley. Mr. Farley, we don't seem to be getting anywhere with your book. I don't want to be an old spoil sport, Mr. Allen, but something tells me that none of your critics has read my book. Well, I'll soon find out. Critics, have you read Mr. Farley's book? No. 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 This is indeed embarrassing, Mr. Farley. No one on the uh, panel, apparently, has read Jim Farley's story. If we could get a few copies of the book in a hurry... I can take care of that. Well, this is Sunday, Mr. Farley. The bookstores are all closed. Fortunately, I always carry a suitcase full of books with me. Wait until I open this case. But, Mr. Farley... Step right up, folks. Get your copy of Jim Farley's story. Mr. Farley. $3.50, complete with jacket and bookmark. Mr. Farley. You say Jim Farley's story ain't enough? Tell you what I'm going to do. Now, wait a minute. Get away, boys. You bother me. Here you are, folks. With every copy of Jim Farley's story, I'm giving him all points back. Thank Mr. James A. Farley for joining us tonight, and Mr. Jack Eigen for tuning us in. Thank you and good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.